Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Feeling a little under the weather, so apologies for the croaky voice in advance. Uh, hopefully, my thoughts will be cool, calm, and collected. Uh, I've been laid up in bed for the past few days, so ask my audience to be patient with me today, but we'll get through this. I have the utmost of confidence, if not in myself, then in my guest today, who, by the way, is Zed Jelani. Zed is a journalist former guest of DPS. He's currently on a fellowship where he studies political and social polarization at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. He's also the co-host of the podcast that he teased last time he was on the show. It had not yet begun, but it has now begun in earnest, and it's good, folks. You guys should check it out. That podcast is called Extremely Offline. I'll link to it in the show notes. If you're not already a listener, you should be. Subscribe to that podcast. We'll talk more about that. Zed, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, great to be here. So not only are you now a fellow podcast host and a veteran journalist at such a young age, but you got a really great piece that dropped today as we record this. At least the version that we're going to be discussing dropped today. This episode's going to come out on Thursday, so it will still be hot off the presses. People should check this out. I will link to that in the show notes as well. But you're reporting on a recent study, a scholarly study that was done under fairly rigorous conditions, as far as I can tell. You can comment on that in just a moment. That threw into question the efficacy of the white privilege narrative in terms of its ability to establish a robust uh, sensitivity to the suffering of others. This is a thesis that we've returned to uh, time and time again since the very beginning of DPS, almost two and a half years ago. So here is a psychology study finding some really concerning results in terms of the ability of privilege theory to inspire people to take on a robust and well-rounded view of poverty and inequality across racial and ethnic backgrounds. So talk to me about how you came across this study and um, you know how it impacted you. Uh, one could rightly accuse us of confirmation bias when we come across a study like this. Both you and myself are known critics of privilege theory as a way of capturing the real and existing inequalities and racism in our society. Talk to me about this study and and how we are not simply just memeing confirmation bias. Yeah, so this is, was, was a really interesting study. It was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. I believe it was in the May edition. If you go to my piece, uh, either the original one I wrote for Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley, um, which was more focusing on the study and experiment itself, and then the one on Quillette, where I gave a little bit more opinion, a little bit more anecdotes um, to kind of build out also the value of the study. Uh, if you go to either of those, I think I linked to the study so you can go, people can go and read it for themselves. But basically, uh, there was a team of researchers led by uh, one lead researcher, Aaron Cooley at Colgate, uh, which I believe is in upstate New York, pretty close to where I went to school, which is at Syracuse for my master's. And um, basically, Erin Cooley studies uh, racial prejudice. She's a psychologist, and she's really, really interested in sort of the thought processes, pro thought processes that kind of give way to racial prejudice, that give way to racial bias. Um, and by all intents and purposes, she is a social liberal herself. Uh, one of her related studies that just came out showed that uh, people generally associate 
being whiter with being richer and being black with being poorer. And that actually impacts how much they tend to, dist- uh, to support economic re- redistribution. So I think a lot of what her work has generally investigated would line up with sort of the, the racial liberal narrative of the moment. But she actually kind of surprised herself with this most recent study, which is the one that I wrote up. Basically, what she did is her team was interested. So if we teach people about white privilege, and for that, they used basically a passage from Peggy McIntosh, which was the sort of original theorist of white privilege in the 1980s. Uh, If we teach people about white privilege, will that increase their sympathy for poor African-Americans? Basically, the theory is uh, African-Americans don't have all these advantages that whites have. So people will feel more sympathetic towards them. Naturally, they'll feel by by learning about this, they'll they'll um, kind of become more aware of the challenges that poor African Americans have, and they'll, they'll feel more sympathetic. Uh, actually, what her study found was that for both social liberals and social conservatives, because they tested both groups and they had them identify uh, along a spectrum with various issue testing, for both groups, giving them a white privilege lesson actually did not increase their sympathy towards a poor African American. Um, and basically, they tested this by reading someone the story of a hypothetical person named Kevin. Kevin had been in and out of jail. Kevin had been on welfare rolls. Kevin had various misfortunes. Uh, But they would either be tested as white Kevin or black Kevin. Um, For both groups of people, it didn't actually increase sympathy for for Kevin. Uh, So basically, these white privilege lessons could actually be decreasing sympathy for poor whites among liberals. And that was what really shocked uh, Dr. Cooley when I talked to her. She had described herself as a social liberal herself. She had done all this work on racial prejudice that, you know, speaks about how racial prejudice acts against uh, minority groups. And, you know, she she told me a really interesting anecdote, which is that actually she is engaged to someone who's white, a white man, uh, who she had argued with many times about white privilege, trying to get him to understand the concept, why it's important. And eventually she came to the conclusion, particularly after doing this study, that maybe she wasn't seeing some of the life disadvantages he had outside of race. Uh, she told me that he grew up very poor. Um, and that's part of why he, this concept didn't really jive with him. He didn't really see himself as having all these advantages she imagined. And I think doing this study really opened her eyes. And I think that's why she was, you know, I think it speaks a lot to her integrity as a researcher that I think it cut against some of her prior beliefs about this. Um, but she still performed the study in a very robust way, got it out there, published. She also wrote, I think, a first-person narrative about this for Vice, around the same time I was writing all this. Uh, so readers can, uh, listeners can also check that out. Yeah, and yeah, I think sure. that, you know, the study is very interesting because this concept has gotten, I believe Peggy McIntosh wrote her original white privilege kind of essay in 1988, which was the year I was born. So you know, I'm 31 years old. Um, and I didn't really hear that much about pr- the word privilege being used this way until very recently. I'd say I started hearing it maybe around 2010. Um, so it hasn't, to me, the, the concept kind of had a corner of academia uh, for a really long time, like a humanities academia or parts of maybe sociology or race, the, uh, gender studies, racial theory. It probably exploded in the news media recently. I think there's a there's a gentleman by the name of Zach Goldberg uh, who does a who has a ton of just like political science data that he puts on social media on Twitter and stuff. And I think he actually did a search on the term white privilege, and he found that in the news it just like massively spiked after 2010. I think he actually put that up very recently, maybe today. So actually, this concept just had a massive explosion in terms of usage. There hasn't been a comparable amount of research on what this would actually like do for people. Like, There's so much research on racial bias, sort of how we should talk about these issues, but there hasn't been that much on privilege theory or privilege discourse, I should say. Um, and so this is, part, this is some of the very, I think, rare research out there that actually looks at 
what is the impact of actually having people do this, having people talk about white privilege? Is it making them more sympathetic towards racial minorities? Is it also flattening the image of whites so that people can only see them through a lens of racial privilege and they maybe would discount other factors like social class or other uh, life disadvantages of which there are countless? Um, And it seems like from this study, it's a really cautionary tale about how sometimes giving people lessons about these kind of things won't you know, it won't actually increase sympathy for either group, for whites or for minorities or African-Americans. It would actually just decrease sympathy for one of the groups, um, which I don't think is the goal for many people who are doing this. Um, but I just think we haven't had enough research to understand uh, what the impact is. So so I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not sure if it's the result of my fevered brain, if I heard you incorrectly. But when you were talking about the, the final conclusions of the story, just to be clear for the listeners, uh, sensitivity, empathy towards uh, poor whites was decreased in the social liberal category. Is that is that right. correct? That That's really the only real outcome, uh, right. the, the only change after the, quote, lesson in white privilege was given. Right. So talk to me a little bit about Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Privileged Knapsack essay. I believe is that was the, either the title or the summary or the subtitle. Or so. I believe it might have been the subtitle. That came out in 1988, and it, was, uh, it, it talked about what she called white privilege – using this knapsack metaphor. Spell this out for people if if they haven't come across it and talk to us about the attempt at addressing real racial inequalities in this sort of metaphorical way. What, what does that do to people? Yeah, so I mean, um, I don't actually know that much about Macintosh or Beyond, uh, the knapsack essay and the, the white privilege concept. Uh, I believe she's a feminist. She's also an anti-racist writer. I'm not exactly sure what she's doing these days, um, but... Uh, the really, you know, the, the seminal work, the really kind of pivotal work that she's been involved in. Uh, yeah, it's an essay called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Um, and basically she goes, she basically, she says that, um, you know, we often think about racism as somebody has a certain attitude or like an explicit bias. Like, you know, they don't treat people who are Mexican well, or they don't like the Irish or Jews or whatever. Um, but she actually says that there's something like bigger going on that's kind of invisible. Like, you know, the line here, I just pulled up her essay is white privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. So it's actually, it's maybe kind of a dated analogy these days because, uh, I don't think many people carry, uh, maps or, pa- or code books or visa, you know, uh, I think now you might have a smartphone. Maybe she could say it's an invisible smartphone, you know, has all these, a- has all these apps on it. Um, but anyway, in the time, I guess it kind of made sense to, to use that analogy. Uh, basically, she's saying that you have a bunch of invisible advantages uh, that maybe you're not totally aware of, I, especially if you're in the majority group. If you're white, you're not really aware of these things. So she lists, um, let me see how many she lists. I think she lists 50 different kind of examples. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very kind of, it's, it's very a listicle version. It's right. meant uh, as a, a kind of self quiz for you to interrogate how much privilege you have. And to right. complete the metaphor, the idea is that you're, you're sort of on a, a voyage, a journey, uh, if you will, of life. And this knapsack is or isn't full of tools and implements that might help you succeed. Whereas other people don't have tools or implements. Yeah. Uh, in the and same uh, it's, way. it's worth also, you know, reading some of these to, to imagine, um, you know, you being able to have these tools and other people not having them. So one of them, I think the very first one she lists is that I can, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. Um, another one is uh, I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. Uh, I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Um, 
you know, there, there's it's it's very individualized. It's like this is an experience that you as a white person will have uh, for sure. Um, basically, and it's not even that contextual. Like she doesn't really say it's like some people have it. Sometimes it's like, yeah, no, yeah. this is this is what you will have. Right. Well, I think we can unpack this on. on wait, I, I, that was not a pun. Maybe it should have been. That, that was funny to my fevered mind. I don't know. Sorry, mm-hmm. listeners. Uh, we can unpack this in a variety of different ways, wherein like. On the one hand, there are certain advantages that certain people have that can help them navigate life in, in, in some ways that are better than others. You could easily find a couple of things on that list that would pass muster, uh, you know, as far as most people are concerned. But there's other things I think that we want to sort of distinguish there. It's like I can go to a music store and find an album, which is like also a dated analogy find an album that is compatible with my cultural heritage or background or whatever. And it's like, I'm not actually sure that was ever true because, you know, as other guests on my show have pointed out, you know, I think, you know, African-Americans have been ahead of the curve when it comes to producing pop culture and music for sure. And other things like that. It's, it's So there's some bizarre analogies in that list as well. I Well, I think for one, I mean, for one, I'm not. Yeah, the truth value of a lot of this at that time was a little bit sketchy, but also that was this was written in 1988 and. It's 2019 today. I think uh, I remember reading statistics on like Hollywood leads or something. And like African-Americans are very well represented in Hollywood now. Like I think they are proportionate to their population in terms of leads and major films and things. So like some of this is just dated based, I think, on the time. I mean, maybe it was more true in 1988 uh, than it is in 2019. But I I think, you know, my my main kind of bone to pick with this, though, is that uh, I think these are being treated as truisms. Whereas they're highly contextual. So like if you, you know, um, the the very first one, if I can, I can, you know, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. The reality is most people in America can probably find other people of their race to hang out with. We actually know there's a big segregation problem in a lot of cities yeah. in America. Yeah, that's a problem for that, most people. Meaning yeah. that a lot of people can be in their yeah. company of people of, most of their race most of the time if they want to. Uh, but maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe yeah. the, you know, more integration is what's necessary. So parts of this... Um, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of this, there are, there is some truth here. Like there are definitely, um, and you know, one way to reframe this also is just like majority, like being in the majority in any group means that you're going to see more of your group around. It's not even limited to whites. Uh, if you happen to be in Southwest Atlanta, which is like majority black, all these things will probably still apply to you in a different context, right? Uh, in any kind of segregated environment, you're going to see a lot of, I think what she's describing here. Uh, but she seemed to apply it only to whites and also in a static context, meaning it exists the same everywhere at all times, whereas sometimes it's not the case with these things. Uh, and sometimes it applies to people who are not in these racial groups. I mean, a lot of this applies to me and I'm not white. So I think, you know, just making it such a hard and fast thing as if it's like the Ten Commandments, I think that's taking a lot of this uh, a bit too far. And I think that's where, where people maybe make mistakes um, in, in terms of discussing things like racial privilege is that I think they treat it as if it's flattening the image of every member of that racial group they're talking about, uh, as if it applies to them in all contexts at all times. And also it shifts a lot of their attention to the group they're calling privileged and away from the group that's underprivileged. When I was growing up, the context which I heard the word privilege used most often was the underprivileged. Uh, what about people who don't have good jobs, don't have foodie, don't have good roof over their head, don't can't see the doctor, can't afford rent? I mean, these that language was designed to focus your attention on a group of people who are being denied various uh, rights and things that they should expect in decent life in a, in a rich country. Um, I think the privilege discourse often shifts people's attention 
to kind of looking at a group as being like specially advantaged, like almost like a monarchical class or something, and maybe creates resentment or envy towards that group. And I think this study kind of shows that. I mean, we didn't see any on average increase in sympathy uh, for poor African-Americans, either among social conservatives or social liberals. Um, the privilege discourse didn't do what I think maybe Peggy McIntosh would have had intended it to do, which was to increase sympathy for uh, people who weren't white. It seems to me that the most important component of this study and the most important component of what goes on in these uh, gender studies and sociology courses across the country when Peggy McIntosh is taught and privilege theory is, um, is delivered as a methodology of seeing the world and taking the complexity of you know, capitalist society and reducing it to these uh, race reductive ways of thinking. You know, class reductionism is a slur that gets thrown around in various ways. Sometimes it's more accurate than others. I think that class reductionism was uh, potentially a real problem, particularly on the Marxist left in the late 20th century, mid to late 20th century for sure. I'm putting all that to the, to the side. Nowadays, when I think when people talk about class reductionist, they're being very uh, unfair and uncharitable towards people who want to think much more seriously about – what we're discussing here, which I think is the problem of race reductionism. And so what, what this privilege theory does is that it forces us to think in terms of race reductionism. And what happens in this study is a really interesting part here where the participants are asked to list two privileges that white people experience in America together. And what happens here is they're asking these people to, um, to embody and to take on this racial thinking, right? Because race, if, if nothing else, it's a construct. It doesn't exist. It's not real. I mean, that's the consensus right now. It's both the right. social scientific consensus. It is certainly the consensus in the hard sciences. Race is mythology. Now, it's been weaponized and instrumentalized in a variety of ways. There's no doubt about that. But the way that this, uh, this privilege theory progresses is to encourage people to take it on as though it was norm, as though it were normative and ontological even, such that I would, I would wonder if the flip side of this uh, question, if this study could be pursued in, in a different sort of way, and this is highly speculative, but I wonder if you did this test on an African-American, for example, uh, of, of, of high status, well-to-do, relatively well-off economically and socially, and, to, and encourage them to take on a racial form of thinking for themselves, if they wouldn't have a similar uh, disgust for – a young black man who came on hard times such as Kevin did in this particular story. So do you see what I'm saying? It seems to me that this racial thinking, no matter where it's applied, whether you're white, black, brown, or yellow, or, or what, or any color under the rainbow, uh, might not encourage people to flatten out the hardships and the misery that people face every day. Well, I mean, it's, you know, part of the problem is, okay, so there are um, on average differences by racial group. When social science, serious social scientists or economists or sociologists discuss these things, I think there's a good agreement, good consensus between those people that they're talking about things on average. So like on average, for instance, you know, the rate of incarceration is higher among African-Americans than it is among whites or it's even higher than Latinos, certainly much higher than Asian-Americans. But that rate does not is not supposed to describe every individual in every context. Uh, so, for instance, like half the prison population in the United States is white. Uh, if you're a white prisoner or a black prisoner, it really doesn't matter to you 
what the larger percentage of your group is in jail. You are in jail, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, so, you know, we can take that reality that uh, African-Americans are disproportionately part of the prison population and also understand that we shouldn't apply this to every person the way the privilege discourse does. We shouldn't say, well, if you are a white pr- pr- prisoner, you're privileged because uh, less of a percentage of your group is in jail. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like you're an individual. You're living your life as an individual. You're behind bars. Uh, the largest percentage, the largest number of individuals in the country who are in poverty are white, right? Uh, it's true. A lower percentage of their group is, but that's a statistical truth about uh, truth about like a numerical group. It's not a statistical truth about, it's not a truth about the individuals who are in that circumstance. And I think the privilege discourse is so individualized. It's so like inward looking that it really is trying to say, if you are white, you have to declare that you have these privileges. And once you've done that, you are, you know, you are reborn or something. I don't know. It's, it feels like a, it feels like religious rhetoric sometimes, or at least a certain kind, not, not all religious rhetoric is like this, but a certain kind that's maybe dispensationalist or of that, of that camp. Um, is basically saying that you have to acknowledge that you personally have these things. We should be able to acknowledge that there certainly are advantages that on average, as a group, whites may experience over other groups. Uh, there's a number of those that we can discuss. There are also, by the way, disadvantages. Uh, I discussed that in the Quillette piece. Uh, suicide rates are like more than twice as high among um, whites as they are other groups. Uh, with the exception of Native Americans, I should say that. Native Americans have the highest uh, then whites, and then whites are significantly above African Americans, Latinos, and Asians are lowest. So those are that's also true. But that doesn't mean that uh, you know if you're Asian, you're privileged, and you're never going to be susceptible to suicide. As an individual, you may be highly susceptible to suicide. Uh, just the the racial group averages should not be used to describe individuals. And part of the reason for that is very. I think that's very almost universally understood in American uh, intellectual life when we talk about things like I don't know crime rates. Right? You shouldn't say because one group has a higher crime rate. That means that the individuals of that group are more criminally prone or they're, you know, they're those group rate averages cannot be used to describe um, any one person. Right. Sure. Imagine refusing to hire somebody because right. they're of a certain race and, you know, there's a certain, I don't know, genetic propensity towards criminality. Right. That would be absolutely shunned. But but we're, we're using a similar kind of pseudoscientific slippage when we talk about uh, privilege theory. Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope you're enjoying today's podcast. But I'd like to break in here and do a quick funding pitch. DPS Media is entirely funded by its listeners and its viewers. So this is, unfortunately, in our capitalist society, a necessary evil. As most of you know by now, we have recently launched our YouTube channel, where we'll be releasing weekly videos. That series is called Democratic Socialism 101. Its primary intention is not only to entertain you, but also to educate the masses about the basics of democratic socialism. I think there's a big gap there on YouTube and on the internet in general, and we're doing the best we can to try to fill that gap and bring the masses to socialism as opposed to the other harmful and toxic ideologies that you can find out there on YouTube. We've also launched a website that is still under construction, but there's a fair amount of content over there already. People should check that out. It's at deadpundits.com. We're going to be posting articles starting next week, so everybody look out for that. With that being said, this expansion has greatly increased the amount of money, time, and effort to put all this together. So if you enjoy Dead Pundit Society podcast, if you've checked out our DPS media videos over there on YouTube and that project excites you, you're interested in supporting this idea of bringing democratic socialist politics to the masses, or if you merely just think it's a good idea to support socialist media. 
head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and consider joining this society at one of our patron levels. I know there are a lot of people out there these days asking for your money. I'm sure most of them are very deserving. But if you're financially able to do so and you enjoy DPS on YouTube, iTunes, or otherwise, we ask you to throw into the tip jar. Help support this project, bring socialist politics to the masses. One thing that I can guarantee you that most other charities certainly cannot is that I reinvest the maximum amount of money that comes into me through the Patreon into this project, into the equipment, hosting, advertising, uh, everything and anything that it takes to build and expand this new budding socialist online media ecosystem that we're trying to develop here, myself and a handful of others. So support that project and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Let's talk about your piece in Quillette. Quillette gets a lot of shit. Let's be honest about this. Quillette has a reputation among some on the left for trying to undermine the, the social justice mission of the left. Just really quickly, so people don't dismiss this piece offhand, talk to me about your relationship to Quillette and, and what you try to do when you publish there. Yeah. Uh, so again, I just want to, I want to emphasize that the very first place I published this was at my day job, Greater Good Science Center. We have a magazine called Greater Good Magazine that works on social psychology. Um, so I wanted to just get the study out there, write it up in a fairly neutral fashion, interview the researcher. Um, so that's another place people can read it if they, if they really are hung up about Colette. Uh, but with Colette, I think I wanted to, to offer a little bit more opinion, uh, do a little bit less of straight reporting on this. And part of the reason I think that Colette is kind of in the place it is, is that I think a lot of the people who write for it are kind of center-left people who are a little bit disenfranchised with, I think, some of what's happening in parts of the academy, particularly the humanities uh, departments. Um, but I certainly don't think it's, you know, like, I, it's really interesting. The The owner of Quillette, Claire Lehman, uh, the owner and publisher, uh, I think she, one time somebody asked her, like, where she is politically. And she says that if she was in the U.S., she'd probably be on the left because we don't have universal health care or child care or... You know, uh, it seemed like from my from my reading, most of the people who write for Quillette are left leaning. But I think they are critical of people, often critical of people who associate with the political left. Um, so it's seen as them being to the right of those people. But I don't necessarily think most of them are. I think maybe a handful of people are actually like genuinely conservative who write for it. Um, but mostly they're liberal leaning or left leaning academics or journalists um, who I think maybe have taken parts of kind of the left side of the culture war and are critical of it. Um, but I think they also do criticize people on the right. Sometimes there's some really interesting articles up now criticizing uh, Dave Rubin and kind of the pivot of his show toward the right saying that he's not taking left wing ideas seriously enough. He's becoming kind of a right wing mirror version of some of the social justice left that he criticizes. So I do think that, you know, Quillette does have some um, ideological diversity there in terms of where they're kind of trying to approach uh, however, they do sometimes give the left, a, a, at least the intellectual left, kind of a hard time. And I do understand why people would see them, therefore, as a very right wing website. Uh, but I just encourage people to go article by article. Uh, I think I probably have a number of disagreements with other people who write there. They probably have a number of disagreements with me. So, you know, I, I, I just I generally tell people unless it's just like a crazy like conspiracy theory, like extremist website or something like generally you should be able to read an article and assess it based on the merits of the facts it brings about regardless of whatever you feel about the editorial leaning of the rest of the, the the website. I mean, I've read articles on right-wing websites that I thought were legitimate and others that I thought were crazy. You know, I've read articles in Jacobin that I thought were pretty decent. I've read others that I thought were really off base. So, you know, that's that's kind of how I approach the whole thing. Um, and I do think that Quillette make is, I think that they are making a fair effort 
um, to try to be persuasive with their articles, which is what I like about them. Like when you write for them, they edit you in a way to say that, hey, are you being really fair to that other side you're criticizing? Or shouldn't you concede these points? Like, I think they really do care about being fair in their arguments. And they're generally not just trying to be like uh, bomb throwers or hacks, um, which I think some people who criticize the social justice left are that way sometimes. I think sometimes you see some people who are just trying to like trigger liberals or troll or whatever. And I'm not into that. I want to have a, like a serious engagement with ideas that I disagree with. And I want to respect the people who are promoting them. I think a lot of people who promote um, the white privilege narrative are really well-intentioned. They're really just trying to promote a better life for minorities, um, which I'm 100% on board with. I've spent a lot of my life reporting about racism and racial inequality. So I really care about that, too. I just kind of disagree with the approach in this case. Mm-hmm. Well said. I, I co-sign uh, m- most of that. I think, you know... Um we on the left, if you consider yourself to be on the left, left if you're a socialist, need to be writing and engaging with an audience that uh, not only disagrees with you, but can can you know give you a little bit of pushback from the from the opposite direction. And uh, Quillette is fairly heterodox in that way. Whatever people may think of their owner or the writers who oftentimes frequent uh, that publication, so I'm glad. I just wanted to get that out of the way. A lot of people. I don't know, they think they're obligated to spit after they say the word Quillette, you know, like it's there's this, uh, you know, how this, this well, gets I mean, I, I don't I don't want to be I don't want to go too strong on the analogy. But I I do remember when political blogs were starting up, which is where I got my start. Uh, I would say 2006, 7, 8, 9. And I feel like a lot of people would take some of the more fringe side of the blogs and they would say, well, that's all that blogs are. And like, this is just a crazy group of people in their basements. And like, you know, I feel like. Quillette sometimes can be characterized by maybe one or two articles people don't like. And so then they will say, well, that's all that Quillette is. You know, there's nothing there's nothing useful there. Um, and I would just encourage people to say that, hey, look, it's, it has a growing audience because it's filling a real demand. Um, and it's worth your time just to, to read a number of the articles there and to think about the demand that it's filling. Um, and think about how it's trying to fit into this ecosystem, because I think they're making a sincere effort to grapple with ideas. I don't think they're just trying to be hacks, um, which is really important to me in terms of it's one of the few rules I would attach to the places I write is that they're making a real serious engagement with ideas. I would like to see an outlet emerge that is stridently and unabashedly leftist and socialist, even principled socialist that could do the job that Quillette is doing by forcing its writers to think very critically, represent the, you know, your opposition fairly, be thorough, make a strong argument and and also throw into question some of the shibboleths that are sort of uh, you know circulated some of these uh, just so stories about uh, theory and strategy and analysis that have been circulated on the left privilege theory uh, you know our top topic under consideration uh, right now being prime among those and that's what we're doing now so i just want to be clear about that um quillette is what we have hell if somebody wants to do better Put your money where your mouth is. Start that outlet and let's get this thing going on the left. But it is what it is, folks. Got to work with what we have. So let's talk more about privilege theory. Um, we were talking about how it encourages racial thinking, which which results in this certain kind of race reductionism. But we're in a moment right now in the wake of Bernie Sanders' heroic but failed attempt at the 2016 nomination. We're in a moment right now where economic justice – has has never been higher on the, the the public's radar than it is today and for a very long time, for most of our, certainly our lifetimes and even the lifetimes of our parents. And this sits very uneasily beside 
this dominant strain of privilege theory that exists on the left today. It's an encouraging sign that people are, are, are pinning the blames, the ills of our society, the macro structural ills and the millionaires and the billionaires. You know, we all we all know the spiel coming from the old man himself. But it seems to, like I said, sit quite uneasily beside this hegemonic, this dominant uh, privilege theory, race reductionist oriented zeitgeist that has been gifted to us from the 1980s onward throughout the humanities and now even bleeding into the social sciences. Talk to me about this mismatch and, and what, is this, what does this say for our uh, political moment that we're, that we're living through right now? I mean, so it's interesting. I start the Quillette piece um, with an anecdote, uh, which is something in a more opinionated website than kind of my social science place I'm at right now. I feel more comfortable doing more uh, anecdotes and opinion. I start with an anecdote. Uh, I attended an event in D.C. recently held by the Aspen Institute. It's called Weave the People. Basically, it's a project that David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, started to work on social bonds and connectedness. Uh, he thinks there's too much alienation and loneliness in America, so he wanted to help support community organizations that work against that. Um, and there was a woman there who spoke. Uh, her name was Sarah Adkins. She's a pharmacist in Ohio. Uh, I think she lives in the eastern part of Ohio, the Appalachian part. And she told a story about how she felt she had a lot of white privilege. Uh, she had a, a good job, a house, everything. But she had a huge tragedy that struck her. Her husband killed her himself, and in doing that, he killed also both of her children. And even after she told that story, she said, well, she had the money to pay for a funeral, to clean up the house. She had white privilege. And I was just sitting there. I was shocked sitting there listening to this because I had never thought of someone who had suffered a tragedy of their whole family dying uh, describing themselves as privileged. And, you know, I, I, I thought about it some more is even if we are taking the logic, which I don't think we should accept this logical model, but if we're taking the logic that your group rate averages are basically applied to every single person, you know, the average is everyone. Even as we discussed earlier, like suicide is a much bigger problem for whites overall than it is for any other group except for Native Americans. So, you know, what, what happened to her was, was more statistically likely to happen to her because she was a middle class white person in Appalachia or a working class white person in Appalachia, maybe even. We know there's a huge rise in white suicide right now, uh, particularly among the working class. So I, I just didn't see how the concept really even applied there, even in its most charitable form. And it's interesting that this was happening within the context of an Aspen Institute event, you know, an event uh, staffed by an organization that generally is seen as a hive mind of philanthrocapitalism, right? Um, they finance a lot of programs, set a lot of the elite agenda. And a big part of, I think, their programs have to do with race and talking about race over and over and things like white privilege. And it's interesting in that I think that the privilege discourse was sitting in parts of the humanities departments and academia for a long time. And then suddenly, I think it got picked up very rapidly by the foundation world, by big funders, by think tanks, by a number of politicians, although it's still not super, uh, I wouldn't say it's super prevalent in, in most mainstream politics yet. But I think this group of people saw it as a form of absolution to finance this. And that I think most of the people who are funding this kind of discourse and conferences and people who talk about this, I think most of them are white. Most of them have a lot of money. And I feel like it's almost a way for them to absolve their own feeling of racial guilt by promoting theory, which would engage, in, which would ask whites to engage in self-flagellation, which would maybe promote some ethno-chauvinism from racial minority activists so that they can tell other people their privilege. 
But at the same time, I'm not sure it's doing a whole lot to actually restructure anything in society to benefit people who aren't white or maybe who have some other kind of underprivilege. And I think it just fits very well with having a class of people who are very wealthy philanthropic capitalists. You know, they can get every, they can have Goldman Sachs have a diversity conference or something where they talk about white privilege, um, but they don't necessarily have to do anything to redistribute yeah. power to anybody. They could, because they've turned it into an inward looking kind of religious self-confessional type event where like the goal is just to have a white person say they're privileged and maybe let a black person talk at their conference occasionally. Like, you know, that's, that's their social change they're trying to promote, but it's not really all that much change. And it may not really help anyone. So, Well, what they're doing is diversifying corporate boardrooms, though, aren't they? I mean, to be more, to be slightly more charitable and also more cynical about the process is that Goldman isn't, you know, it's not just a bunch of white men, you know, circled around these tables, flagellating themselves uh, for their white privilege, but they're, they're allegedly making uh, good on their claims by hiring and diversifying their, their upper echelons, at least, you know, in limited ways. And, you know, it's funny because, that you could, they say that helps minorities and shows that they prove minorities, but the only ones that really helps are the ones they hire, right? Which yeah, is yeah. only so many people can sit on Goldman Sachs's board. They're not going to hire, you know, 10 million working class African Americans to sit on their board. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not, that, that's figures, not how that works. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's um, definitely not. So you're, you're right in that <laughs> they are also elevating some uh, racial minorities in the process, but it's such a small number numeric, numerically. But again, if you read, if you define, your status and your power in a society by we are X percentage of Y, you know, if your X percentage of Goldman's board is Y, well, you've just defined your power around having that percentage, right? Even if it doesn't even touch most of the lives of the individuals of, of working class African American people for that to happen. But unfortunately, the, the you know, the privilege dialogue, I think, often forces, um, it can often very neatly be placed into a box where if you are a company and you want to give all of your employees a, a day where they all talk about their white privilege. And then, you know, that's the expression of power. I mean, you can have as many anti-bias trainings or, you know, privilege trainings as you want, but that isn't going to, that isn't actually going to change the things that, you know, ordinary people tell surveys and opinion researchers they they care about. Meaning, you know, can they go see a doctor? Do they have safety in their neighborhood? Do, can they have a roof over their heads? Do they have enough to eat? Um, you know, are their schools good? Like, those are the things that you, if you were actually addressing inequality for most people, you'd want to address. Uh, instead, for some reason, we zoom out from that and we zoom in on wh- white people. And we want every single white person to describe themselves in a certain way. And once they do that, I don't know what's supposed to happen. I, I don't, I never actually understand what is actually supposed to happen once somebody has confessed this. I mean, we're all Americans, right? We all live much better than the average person in Bangladesh. If we all just confessed our American privilege, would that change, like, I don't know, trade and aid relationship or debt relationship with Bangladesh? I mean, not really. Like, you know, you you know, it's it's yeah. it's fundamentally Catholic. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of guilt that needs to be held on to um, right. in order for for us to sort of find some kind of uh, economic balance there, and economic in the kind of a broader, more generic Greek sense, if you will, and to, to find this balancing act between guilt and flagellation that could make right in some cosmic, you know, universe, uh, one's privilege. I mean, I mean, the thing is, and and this, I think, you know, and I, I write about this a little, I think I have a line about this in the Colette piece, but like, you know, one of the conservative responses to this is just to say that nobody owes anybody anything and you shouldn't even talk about inequality and everything's fair. And I think that's, you know, that's the other, that's, that's another misdirect, I think, from this, because in the terms of like, 
yeah, there are many different types of inequality. Uh, we can see it. We can measure it. It's, it's a real thing. Uh, the question is, how do you talk about it in ways that encourage people to take constructive action about it? And I think, you know, going full Ben Shapiro and just saying, well, none of this is real. It, it never applies in any situation. It's just as bad as saying it applies in every situation and everyone's flattened to their race. And so I think, you know, it is a construct. It is a complex challenge to rise to. Um, you know, I use one example in the piece talking about, for instance, uh, there is some evidence now that there are very high African-American uh maternal mortality rates in hospitals. And there's some evidence that part of the reason why is because there isn't a lot of cultural confidence among some hospital staff. Um, you know, meaning that I think when people are in pain and stuff, they can't really recognize it because they haven't necessarily been trained on on different expressions through different cultural um, uh, avenues. So I think those are real problems to address. But I don't see how we would address it by going to every white lady in a hospital giving birth and asking her to confess her white privilege, right? Like that wouldn't, it wouldn't really do anything. Yeah, it would also yeah. ascribe something to every white woman giving birth, even when there are a lot of white women who uh, have miscarriages, who die during childbirth, uh, particularly people lower on the economic scale. Uh, flattening their image wouldn't help anyone either. Uh, I think what would help is identifying the causes and the consequences of various types of deprivation and getting back to using privilege in the way we used to use it, which was to talk about the underprivileged, right? To talk about people who do face disadvantages in ways that we can measure and we can see and then figuring out how do we get them out of that circumstance. It doesn't, it's not necessarily going to help for us to recast everything that we should expect as citizens as a privilege. I mean, a privilege is something we think about kings and queens, special advantages, you know, the popular girl in school who gets everything she wants. I don't think we should describe a safe childbirth uh, having uh, public safety in your neighborhood, having enough to eat, uh, being able to go to the doctor. I don't think we should describe those things as privileges because the reality is that's something everybody should expect. Yeah, we should fight for those as rights, right? So you're talking about the distinction between privilege versus a right, right? There's a leveling down versus a leveling up. Uh, this right discourse is troubled as it is. And, you know, uh, some of the law nerds out there and some of the, you know, <laughs> the real hardcore humanities contrarians will be saying, ah, 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 not so fast. Rights are complex. And yes, they are complex. But it, it, it's an overall kind of ethos wherein we encourage a leveling up. Uh, we're making a set of demands on on the elites and broader societies such that, you know, all should be uh, you know provided for. My concern here is 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 that. You know, this diversification of corporate boards and, and such, um, this um, what I have called in other uh, on other episodes, this diversity industrial complex. It doesn't it also encourage the outcomes that are described in this study, because if one if, if one person of, say, if an African-American can be the CEO of X major corporation, uh, well, any anyone. Uh, who who is also of quote unquote African American racial uh, background, being that that's you know completely fantastical and mythological. But anyway, uh, could aspire to that uh, to to those heights, which makes us ever more class blind. Which makes us ever more blind to the context of why people do and don't quote succeed in our society. And so it's a doubling down. On, on our inability to assess people's life chances um, in, in that it, way. It definitely is sort of a mirror image in the sense that if people believe, if people come to believe through white privilege training in this discourse that if you're white and you didn't succeed, you must just really be, it must be totally your own fault. You made to tons of terrible mistakes because white privilege gives you all this power. 
it certainly would be a mirror image to look at somebody who's African-American or Latino uh, who does achieve and say that, well, if somebody who's weighed down by so many disadvantages because of the color of their skin can do it, why can't everybody else? It certainly would be a logical mirror. I don't know how often that argument is made. I feel like maybe Ben Carson has made an argument similar to that. Um, I remember I wrote a I wrote a review of a movie called The Florida Project, um, which is a really great movie. Probably one of the most class conscious movies I've ever seen. Um, it's about a strip of motels outside Disney World in Florida. And basically, uh, the it's not a documentary, but it does film in a lot of the motels that are real. And there are documentaries about the real thing. Um, but basically, it's a narrative story set in a very poor family uh, that's living in a motel. Uh, mostly white, but there are also minorities at the, at the motels. Uh, and Ben Carson, you know, I, I used a quote of his to start a review of this movie because Ben Carson has said something like, you know, poverty is a state of mind. Uh, if you have a certain mindset, you'll get out of poverty. And if you have a bad mindset, you'll be rich, but you'll be back in poverty. Um, you know, purely, purely driving it as a matter of your self-consciousness and agency and choices. Yeah. Yeah. This and is Creflo Dollar stuff, self-help. It's right. really been on the rise since the 1980s. And, you know, the thing about Carson, uh, which is really interesting, is that Carson does come from a very, like, rough background. Like, he grew up among, uh, around immense poverty and violence uh, in, in the – in I believe he, it was in Detroit. Um, was it Detroit? It was, or was, it was Wisconsin uh, or it was – Baltimore, wasn't it? Ben Carson? Was it? Uh, I think he studied there. Oh, he studied there. He, okay. I don't know I if don't he grew know up. That he okay, grew sorry up. about that. Sorry, yeah. I haven't read up on his autobiography, you know, that, right. that, that made him famous. <laughs> right. One of the, the man um, with the magic hands or something like but that. It's inter- know, but what's really interesting is that Ben Carson, in his book, I remember reading it. Uh, you read it? The, <laughs> My God. No, I, I don't think I read the whole – I don't know if I read the whole thing or like yeah. – I, I don't know. Somewhere he wrote uh, – basically, he was talking about how African Americans uh, should spend more money within their own community – which is not that different from what a lot of black nationalists say. And actually, like, even Clarence Thomas, like a very conservative justice in the Supreme Court, says things like that at some point. Like, they all have a little bit of, there. like, there is a little bit of overlap between some black nationalist camps that are kind of pro-capitalist and black conservatives. And that they're both kind of arguing that we can do it if we use our money in a certain way or have the right mindset and oh, that yeah. sort of thing. Oh, yeah. oh, there's a tremendous amount of literature that backs that up. Yeah, there's a, there's a black nationalist uh, current that runs through the quote far left and and the hard right in terms of uh, the the black elite class. Yeah, Clarence Thomas and all the rest of them. It's really fascinating stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the current Bernie Sanders moment. Uh, yeah. I think you started you started there. You told us that really fascinating anecdote, and if not heartbreaking, gut wrenching anecdote that you start in your Quillette piece about this woman whose uh, husband killed her own, her two only sons and then killed himself, and she's sort of self flagellating and, and unwilling to acknowledge the intensity of her own agony, her own personal suffering, uh, because uh, she's concerned that she's not acknowledging her white privilege in the process. But now we've got this this 78 whatever some odd year old man, you know, who's who's among the front runners for the Democratic Party uh, primary the nomination for the 2020 race. Bernie Sanders is pushing this economic agenda. He has uh, diversified his approach quite successfully in a way that doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't really give too much ground to the race reductionists, I would argue. I think Nina Turner has done a really fantastic job of. Um, turning personal stories, these personal troubles into collective issues. I think that was C. Wright Mills who sort of uh, pointed that that's the sort of the essence of politics is turning personal troubles into collective social problems. 
And, you know, Nina Turner's done that great, uh, f- fantastically, I think, on the on the campaign trail. And, and he's been able to duck some of his most cynical critics, I think, thus far, that he is so-called weak on, quote, black issues, whatever, you know, those might be that are allegedly specific to the black community. We could name a few, but the ones they typically point to upon further inspection are actually problems that we all face. Housing, mm-hmm. schooling, health care. Yeah, there was actually a polling done uh, around the midterm elections and I think most of the congressional battleground districts and it was focused on African-Americans, but I think they did one on the Latinos as well. And yeah, the issue, I think the number one issue for African-Americans was health care. I think jobs was number two or, or, or economic inequality. I don't think racism was there until like, you know, number four or five or something. And that was like, that's a huge category too, just to say racism, but like, you know, um, yeah, basically there's there's a lot of polling and a lot of survey data that shows that concerns are very similar across racial groups for voters for the most part. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about this mismatch, because this is something I don't know, maybe I'm pushing it a little too hard. I want to tell a personal anecdote. In approximately 2010, I became involved as a graduate student uh, with a socialist group on a college campus, a university campus. And I found uh, time and time again, this was right around the time that whereas you sort of foregrounded earlier in our chat that privilege theory was beginning to raise its its head in quite a, uh, you know, it's an unavoidable discourse that you encounter in the humanities and on, on universities and campuses. And I discovered that it was very difficult to talk about Marx and and class and the material roots of oppression and exploitation in, in capitalist society with these undergraduates because at every turn, you know, their, their, their sort of gut level reaction was, well, what is what do these white people have to complain about? They have every advantage in the world. And if they failed, they only have themselves to blame. So here are the kind of woke college campus radicals who I'm trying to recruit to uh, become good principled socialists at the time uh, around Occupy, who are, you know, basically parroting neoliberal ideology, this kind of bootstrapping, pull yourself up. You know, if you're white, you've got the privilege. What's wrong with you? You failed yourself. You have no one to blame but yourself type of rhetoric. But nowadays you've got Bernie Sanders who comes along. But this 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 dominant privilege theory uh, rhetoric is still very much in the ethos. How do you think these two sit side by side? Well, one, I think among the general American population, uh, privilege discourse is not very powerful. I don't think most people buy it really. I don't think that's how most people from racial minority groups think about themselves in society. Um, I think where it has a lot of power is an elite discourse. I think it has tons and tons of power among certain segment of college-educated folks, among uh, some certain seg- segments of media and political media in particular. And I think the question is whether this elite discourse kind of goes downstream or not and kind of shapes the wider American society. And I think part of that is there's a competition for that. As you mentioned, I think Bernie Sanders kind of offers a different school of thought, one where he describes uh, everyone as kind of being in the same boat. We all have a diversity of problems, but we're basically in the same boat and we should be looking out for each other and not just assuming that, you know, there's a hierarchy among uh, a strict hierarchy that you you kind of are set in almost like a caste, caste system uh, between people whose, you know, life outcomes are pretty similar, whose daily lives are pretty similar. Um, they may face a diversity of challenges, but he wants to address them all kind of together. And I think that it's really difficult to see, I don't know, it's difficult to see a way out of this kind of trap under a government that doesn't aggressively or a elite class that doesn't like kind of 
I guess an elite class that doesn't address these issues in the way at least sort of what Bernie Sanders is talking about. Because I think that for Sanders, he kind of, he comes from an older tradition of the political left, which I think is more based on solidarity between groups and generally not creating a hierarchy between groups who he sees as all sharing disadvantages, of course, different ones often, but all certainly having them. And I think, you know, sometimes Sanders is accused of focusing too much on the economy to the expense of other things. But I mean, let's let's be honest, like if you go to Capitol Hill and I reported on a, from Capitol Hill for years, uh, I don't do daily anymore because I'm, I'm doing a different kind of work right now. Um, but if you go to Capitol Hill and you look at the average piece of legislation or an average hearing, it's usually about money. It's usually about resources for someone or something. Uh, that's like, you know, I don't know. There's that saying like property is nine tenths of the law or something like that. But like, that's generally what the business of government is. It doesn't mean it's exclusively about that. Of course, there are other issues. Um, one of the issues would be, for instance, like gay rights. Gay rights is not a purely economic issue, although it may have economic components. Uh, it's also a social tolerance issue. But, um, you know, even that fight was not won by people declaring their straight privilege or whatever, right? It was basically, it was basically won by uh, extended contact theory between different groups of people and solidarity between different groups of people. But I think that, yeah, I do think that Sanders is kind of offering an alternative route out of a lot of this discourse. And I don't really think any of his competitors are wedded to it, but they do see it as like a political weapon they can utilize when it's convenient. Like they feel like it's a political weapon that they can kind of deploy either against him or against other people who are trying to build the multiracial solidarity. Um, because at the end of the day, you can't you can't really set out a hierarchy and then say everyone in that hierarchy is going to have to have the same interests and get along. Like if you want to unite working class people, you kind of just have to unite working class people. Um, if you're going to segment them and say that the fact that these working class people are different races is just as important as the fact that they're from different, you know, that they're in the same class. Well, if the two things are equal, they're not, you're not going to have the unity or solidarity. Uh, they can coexist in different ways. And I think that's something that Dr. Cooley, when I interviewed her, stressed, which is that, yeah, uh, nobody is just one, uh, you know, they're not just one demographic group. If you're a man, you're not, not, it's not like everything in your life is defined by being a man and by your quote unquote male privilege or anything. People are usually complex and they have a variety of different assets and disadvantages and advantages. And I think what Sanders is doing is saying he's laying out a policy program that would address most of people's disadvantages in most contexts and saying that if people kind of stand together and give the votes and, and create a coalition along that, that they can address everyone's problems together and show kind of a solidarity. Um, he, I remember, you know, in his rallies, if you go to one of his rallies, he says something like, well, the men in the room have to stand with the women on this and the ex have to stand on that. You know, he's not saying, you know, you're men, you're bad, you have privilege, you need to confess this. He's saying this is an issue uh, that you know these people face. Let's stand with them and let's address it, just like we're going to address the issues that you face. Um, and I think that is kind of a larger, I think that is kind of a lar much more intuitive way of looking at the world that I think was dominant even among elite intellectual circles on the left for a very long time. Uh, I think in the 80s, a lot of the intellectual left kind of went very inward underground because they kind of lost the political contest with the political economy to the Reaganites. Um, they had basically no power there. The labor had collapsed. So they decided, well, they can fight fights within their like department, <laughs> you know, within their university and, and like own the white professor or whatever, um, which is fine. But then you're going to have a very small fiefdom to work with because the reality is this does not appeal to most people. Uh, it often causes 
a lot of fruitless arguing and, and, and bitter feelings among people, um, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problems. And I think that's what ultimately at the bottom of everyone, I think, wants to solve these actual, solve the underlying problems that are creating these in- inequities uh, and structural disadvantages. And we just need to, we just need to understand that we should be somewhat flexible about the way that we do it. I think a lot of people who use the white privilege discourse really do just want to solve a lot of these problems, but they're so, they're wedded to the discourse more than they're wedded to the outcome. I think you need to be flexible with your tactics to achieve the outcome that we all want to, we all want to see. Yeah. There are a lot of cross cutting incentives and motivations that we would have to unpack. It would take multiple episodes to do that. You know, you talk about being wedded to a discourse. Well, it's now concretized and institutionalized in disciplines and people stake their careers and their reputations on said disciplines. And they have their personal uh, networks and affinities and that are defined by those uh, disciplines and subfields. And, and, and suddenly you have cross cutting incentives that, that go far beyond. I mean, surprise, the world is dictated by material interests more so than uh, discourse. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, so th- there, that's why it gets so messy, I think, at times. But as Cedric Johnson said on the program just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we have to be able to form majorities if we want to overcome these exploit, exploitative and oppressive you know, dynamics of society. And that's kind of what Sanders is pointing to when he's asking the men to stand with the women here and asking you know, the white folks in the audience to stand with the, you know, the racialized or ethnically, uh, you know, identified people there or the, the, you know, the, the cis people to stand with the, the, you know, whatever have you, right. We have to be able to form majorities in order over to, in order to overcome this. And last question. You published in Quillette, which is oftentimes uh, seen to be overly sympathetic to the, the types of people that I would like to, to talk about now. You mentioned Ben Shapiro, uh, Dave Rubin, some of these others, Stephen Crowder, who oftentimes you know, will pick on some you know, 19-year-old or whatever. They, they can't debate an adult. It's very odd the way they comport themselves anyway. It seems to me that this privilege theory flattens nuance and complexity in a way that provides those types of people with a very easy punching bag. And it seems to me that a principled leftist would want to, I mean, if there's a straw man that your enemies can easily burn down, it would seem that the principled and passionate thing to do there, uh, the only thing to do there, would be to, to strengthen that straw man to, to give it some proper fortifications, to give it some steel plating and, and make it, you know, far more, far more difficult to caricature and, and burn down in the ways that, that they have. And it seems like that's what you're trying to do here with your Quillette piece. How do you think we go about that? How do we go about doing that, that, that dual, that Janus face project that you mentioned earlier on in the show? On the one hand, fighting the kind of racial, uh, the racist and oppressive aspects of society that no undoubtedly impact certain people more than others. And on the other hand, pushing back against these uh, oversimplifications embodied by privilege theory and the likes of them. I mean, I think that viewing it as if we're fighting on uh, two fronts might actually make our lives more difficult in a way in that, you know, we, we think we don't have a constituency, but we're fighting two other constituencies that are strong. Uh, maybe a better way to view it was that we feel like we have a solution being promoted, just like, I don't know, there's a contest for like, you know, I in school, I used to be in like science contests, and I'd have an invention or whatever, like, you know, we have our own approach, right? We have our, we think there are various problems in society, we have an approach, we think that this approach 
you know, it doesn't have a lot of the pitfalls and trip wires that the other approaches have. And I think the Ben Shapiro approach, Peggy McIntosh approach, are full of trip wires. They're not uniting a majority of people, and they're not addressing the concerns of the majority of people. They're both actually fairly small constituencies, a very small number of Americans in the grand scheme of things really buy into privilege discourse. A very small number of Americans in the grand scheme of things really think like Ben Shapiro and think that, you know, American healthcare is going to be solved if you like say better or whatever, right? Like in the real world, those are very small constituencies. We should think of ourselves as trying to build a kind of a comprehensive worldview and plan of action and way of synthesizing uh, our society that's going to appeal to a broad, broad segment of people, whether you happen to be any race, whether you happen to be any gender, whether you happen to come from basically any background, this approach will be more likely to address your problems and your concerns and not to try to segment you out into a group which we're going to say doesn't have problems or concerns or, you know, so so on and so forth. I think by viewing it that way, it would be a little bit more, I think you'd feel a little bit less like you're being caught in the center of two people fighting and you kind of have to fight them both at the same time. That's kind of how I try to conceptualize it because I think at the end of the day, most people, if we sit down and have this conversation with them in the way that we're having it, I think we'll find there's a ton in common with us and with people who are out there just looking at the different approaches. And some people maybe are looking at what Ben Shapiro says, some people are looking at what some people on on, on uh, the Pac- McIntosh side are saying. And I think a lot of these people are going to come to the same conclusions as us, is that, like, hey, we all want to solve these problems. But maybe this just isn't the best way of going about it. Because at the end of the day, the outcomes are what matters. It doesn't, at the end, I mean, you, maybe Shapiro is very happy with having his audience. Maybe the race reductionist crowd is very happy with having their audience and getting retweets and foundation grants and media hits. But at the end of the day, if you really want to solve the problems and you're talking about the outcomes and you need to be agnostic about how you reach the outcomes, the meth, unless we're talking about really extreme things, obviously there are, you know, you don't want to commit human rights abuses in, in the path of reaching your outcomes. But if you're talking about if we just need to change the way we talk about racial inequality in a way that would make that would not flatten the image of whites and would also not uh, so that we're erasing disadvantages they can have as well. And also in a way that's not shifting attention away from the actual underprivileged minorities, which it appears this may be doing because it's more focused on trying to shame or stigmatize or locate the special advantage group rather than it is actually increasing sympathy for the underprivileged then I think we have a path forward to say we, we care about reducing these inequalities as the outcome, but we need to be flexible in terms of the way we're talking about this in order to achieve that goal, because the way it's currently being done doesn't seem like it's going to cut it. Very well said. In a word, I would say we could summarize that as we must transcend the culture wars that define both the right and the left right now. And there are many, many material interests at stake that keep people embattled uh, or bunkered in those culture wars. You pointed to, you know, subscribers and patrons and foundation grants and various, you know, various professional and social networks and all the rest of them. But uh, you're leading the way and trying to to pull that off, transcend those culture wars. And I really enjoyed this piece and I enjoy your work as always. And if folks like this approach in terms of transcending the culture wars, trying to get two people from opposite sides to sit down and hash it out and see where the real fundamental disagreements lie, make sure you check out Zed Jelani and Leighton Woodhouse's uh, podcast, Extremely Offline. It is available on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else that you listen to podcasts. People should check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks for putting up with my fevered self, Zed, and listeners alike. I'm not feeling 
the best, but uh, Zed, you you did a fantastic job. Thanks again for joining us on DPS, and we look forward to chatting with you, you know, in the coming year. So I'm sure we'll be glad to have you back. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I hope you feel better. Oh, this new crazy mother.